he also did a uh, Tiny Desk concert with Shaggy, of all people, which I don't know if anyone they knew. They tour together. They, they, they tour together. Yeah. <laughs> the collaboration you didn't know you needed. I don't need that. I definitely don't need that. Message in the bot. <laughs> He's got that weird frog thing. <laughs> <laughs> What is up, everyone? Welcome to 1001 Album Complaints, the show where experienced musicians and longtime friends randomly select an album from Robert Dimery's book, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. Each week, we discuss, analyze, laud, mock, ridicule, and otherwise critique the album over some hearty laughs and cynical banter. This week, we're listening to Synchronicity by The Police. If you haven't heard this album, go check it out first, then come back for a serving of piping hot takes on this record. Piping hot, super hot. (laughs) Yes. I love all it. This is all great. We'll go deep into a few select tracks, and at the end we'll vote on whether or not we think you actually need to listen to this album before you die. And then it's on to the next album, where we'll repeat this process about 990 more times (laughs) till we get through this entire list. (laughs) With us today, we have some of our usual suspects. I am Alan. I am Phil, longtime friend, longtime police fan. I am Tom. Uh, I don't really even like these guys, but I do like the police. <laughs> and I am Adam. And uh, yeah, I'll try not to dive into my thoughts on this album just yet, but I'm salivating. Save it. Gotta Save milk it. it. We yeah, got like two hours, two two and a half hours to cover here. So <laughs> it's like Joe Rogan style. Yeah. Four hours in, and we're just getting to the tracks. You guys ever do DMT? Or... <laughs> what do you know about raw elk meat? <laughs> What's he always talking about on it? <laughs> yeah, we got to get ourselves it? some uh, some shady pills to sling on this podcast. Yeah, That's where man, the money sure. is. Oh. Sure. Spotify oh, no, is no, hundred no, million bucks. No, no, we got we're holding on for that sweet, sweet Arby's money. You know oh I mean? yeah, brought to you by delicious graying roast beef. The Big Montana, for a limited time only. That was Sting's nickname during the police. Is Big Montana? Yeah. Actually, not many people know that. <laughs> they put they sprinkle the tums right on the sandwich. <laughs> oh, that's great. All right. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll jump into this record, but but first, uh, just a little bit of uh, brief background on the police for the uninitiated, if, if there are many of you out there. Um, the police were, were formed in 1977 in London and were comprised of Stuart Copeland on drums, Andy Summers on guitar, and this guy named Gordon Sumner, who by day was a apparently a mild-mannered English teacher at the time, but by night was a jazz fusion bassist who went by the name of Sting, who, of course, was also the vocalist and chief songwriter. Also very much a household name, uh, possibly known as much for his you know tantric capabilities as his music <laughs> at this point in things. Um, I'll talk a little bit about how they were formed, because I think they kind of have an interesting like origin story. Um, so kind of in the mid six or mid seventies, mid to late seventies, Stuart Copeland was actually playing in a, in a prog rock band. I think they were called curved air, which sounds pretty proggy to me. Oh, um, super prog. terrible name. 
<laughs> that was a terrible <laughs> name, but Super Prague. Super Prague. Uh, but at the time, he could kind of see that, you know, punk rock was really starting to to blow up in that scene. And he definitely was not a punk rocker in any sense of the word. And I think he would, uh, he acknowledges that over and over um, as he, you know, retrospects on his time with the police. Um but at the time, he really wanted in on what was happening in that scene. There was a lot of energy, a lot of vibe, a lot of potential kind of commercial viability in the punk scene. Um, so he decided to form a minimalist punk band that he called The Police. Um, I think it was more about wanting to kind of seize the moment at that time. Um, so he actually, the first guy he the first guy he actually recruited into the band was this guitarist named Henry Padovani. So I guess he was like the the Pete Best of of the police. So he was actually the first guitar, the first guy that was recruited into the band. And he was kind of your quintessential like three chord power punk player. So just really raw, not a lot of, you know, technical proficiency, but but like lived the punk rock kind of lifestyle. So he was in the band um, and then they needed a bass player. So as you know, Stuart Copeland was putting this group together, he kind of happened upon this jazz fusion band called Last Exit, um, another super cool name. Um, his only takeaway from that show, there, there weren't many, apparently it was a very unremarkable show, but they had this wildly charismatic bass player named uh sting of course and um so he really wanted sting in this group and and you know sting was kind of skeptical of the project it wasn't didn't really think it was his thing but he, he thought it could be you know a commercial success so he kind of hopped on board and you know that was actually the first incarnation of, of the police um it was short-lived though because they released one single and it really didn't do shit it was you know, kind of, kind of a bomb. Um, and I think there was a sense that was developing that, you know, this guitar player was, was like real punk rock, but the other guys were just kind of posers or, um, you know, they had a lot of technical chops, but they, they weren't, you know, they didn't have like street cred enough to really disqualifier for a punk band. You cannot have technical chops and listen to drummer. (laughs) (laughs) And definitely technical chops and no street cred. Yeah, definitely not. There was this, this little, uh, thing I listened to on YouTube about, this this album and one of the it might have been the guitar player the drummer's brother was their manager and and he was talking about how at the time if other bands knew you could play your instruments you couldn't possibly have like a political message so therefore you weren't street cred punk if you could play your instruments that reminds me, uh, my, my stepdad used to have this friend who was really into like this this kind of music back in the day. My parents were also really into the police. I actually found some of the first music I ever listened to was finding this random police tape like in my parents' bedroom. And I listened to it and was just like, what, what is this? But, you know, I liked it. Um, but this guy who used to hang out with my, my stepdad, he used to talk about the Ramones all the time. And he, he made some comment once that I always remembered, which was, their music became way shittier as they learned how to play their instruments better over the years. And at the time I was like, what could that possibly, how does that make sense? What does that mean? But uh, it's terrible. Distracting me with these properly fretted chord changes. Come on. (laughs) What is this? uh, Diminished seventh chord bullshit. Leave. (laughs) So, so, you know, they're, they're sort of like slogging along with this, you know, pseudo punk band. Meanwhile, sort of unrelated to the police, uh, Sting and Stuart Copeland were invited to do some some session work for a local project. And that's where they met Andy Summers, who was kind of playing guitar on this project. And he was actually a, you know, a pro at the time. He, you know, sort of hung out with and, and played a lot with, you know, Clapton, Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page. 
you know, so this guy was pretty, you know, hopefully he, he didn't have um, Eric Clapton's, you know, shortcomings in terms of personality. Or Jimmy but, uh, Page's shortcomings in, term, in terms of rhythm. Right. <laughs> Overall not, let's, skill. Let's, let's not bring it. Let's just not bring it. This is, this is a foolish, this is a fool's, it's a fool's end. Yeah. Page, fair enough. God. Fair enough. So, uh, so anyway, it was like during that session that actually uh, the story goes that Andy Summers sort of wedged his way into the band because he, he really liked what uh, Sting and Stuart Copeland kind of had going on. And uh, according to uh, Stuart Copeland, he said in, in an interview that after the session, Andy Summers came up to him and said, look, you and Sting actually have talent, but you need me in the band and I accept so <laughs> definitely high opinion of his abilities. And so he kind of wedged his way into the band that way. And then um, shortly after that, in August of 77, they played their first gig as the police that, that we kind of know now. You know, it's funny, that story, it kind of repaints my impression of Andy Summers because Sting and Stuart Copeland are both big personalities. But like, that's a, that's a, that's a baller move. That's like, you know, I just, put my nuts on the table and like there you go look at him so I'm in your band right like um that's not what I've expected from Andy I picture Andy Summers as like the Kirk Hammett of uh of this band just kind of like the peacemaker and like you know not the guy who's like way you know uh the the sort of big in in your face personality but yeah that's a pretty baller move I give I'll give him credit for that yeah, well I think I, I don't know that his like I didn't come across anything that said he had like a kind of bombastic personality or anything like that but he definitely had i mean he was a pro and had a you know wanted in on what they were doing and really thought that he could be the one to kind of take him over the top well i I think something that's interesting right is he's significantly older than them i believe it's copeland's brother or father who finances the first record um so like andy sumner is born in or summers is born in like 58 or 59 Whereas like the other guys are born, you know, probably like 10 years later, right? They're probably more like, you know, 69, maybe even 70. Yeah. Yeah, and for I, sure. There's definitely an age gap. Actually, there. no, I'm looking at it now and it's looking like Copeland's about the same age. So maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. I mean, at least, oh yeah, yeah. I'm totally wrong. Yeah. They're, they're about 10, they're, they're about 10 years apart. Andy, Andy Summer started releasing records as a professional when Stuart Copeland was seven. Okay. All right then. I mean, I got to say that if I was Andy Summers and I was playing with Sting, who's a good bass player and Stuart Copeland, who's a damn good drummer. And then I see that they're playing with some guy who's just like a, you know, crappy power chord guitar player with all attitude and no skill. I'd be like, come on guys. That's I can, (laughs) I can improve upon this, especially if you're in a trio. Like, there's not a lot of room to hang back if you're the guitar player in a trio and just, like, do crappy power chords. Well, that's what was funny was so when they actually brought Andy Summers into the band, Sting didn't want to kick out the original guy because I think he just felt bad. So they actually played two shows as a uh, quartet. And I, th- they all immediately realized that it just wasn't going to work. Police squad. One guy's just sitting there fucking droning one, four, five. And the other guys are playing like syncopated. Right. Reggae prog. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Surely you can play more chords. Like, yes, I can. And don't call me Shirley. And don't call me- <laughs> Police squad references. Well done, sir. Yes. 
So what's interesting though is even even once they got this this group configured, which would ultimately be you know the the police as we know them, they still were playing kind of bad shows early on. You know, in the UK, shows you know that we've all played millions of times where there's kind of ten people there and it's only the girlfriends and now wives and uh it's bad i think i saw somewhere that they once played like a 10 minute set because that's all the material they had and so they had to kind of stretch it out with originals um they actually released roxanne around that time in the uk and they all had like high hopes for it because it's obviously a great song it did absolutely nothing so you know they were kind of at like a crossroads where really nothing was working for them around 78 and then so you know adam you mentioned uh Stuart Copeland's brothers. So one of them was actually like kind of their manager slash right. you know, financier potentially. So he suggested like, hey, you guys got to go to the States, to New York City to get in on that like CBGB scene where, you know, Talking Heads were playing and, and bands like that that were just sort of coming up around that time. And they kind of went for it because they really had nothing to lose. And that's when, you know, they really kind of, caught on and became, you know, a kind of smash hit ultimately. Um, so this is Outlander Steermore era or was Roxanne released as a single before that? So this was, they released it just as a single. So they hadn't even made an album yet. So they were, gotcha. they were kind of going off of like, I mean, they may have had some demos and things like that, but yeah, they, they yeah, didn't gotcha. have a proper, proper album yet. As, as, as far as I understand, mm-hmm. um, but interestingly, though, they re-released Roxanne um, on that album, Outlandos Demore, and, you know, sort of... Uh, it's a pro the, move right there. Pro move. I, to, to, to have that much faith in your song to just... We're just, you know, fuck it. We're going to just put yeah, it out there yeah. one more time and see what happens. Maybe that little material. We're just like, ah, we got to fill out this A-side. We here. need another... <laughs> Roxanne Slight Return. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's uh there's some really great songs in it. I've always loved that song, So Lonely. Uh Can't Stand Losing You. It's a great song. Oh, um, th- yeah, that fresh records. Have you have you seen have you guys seen the cover for the single of Can't Stand Losing You? Um, which is a guy standing on a block of ice with a noose around his neck and the ice is like slowly melting away. It's pretty yeah, it's it's intense. Um, it's, yeah. It's very James Bond. Yeah. It's a great yeah. song. I really I really like that song a lot. I've always uh you know, I've always liked the line like, uh, so "You gave my records back and my LP records. So you gave my letters back, my LP records, and they're all scratched." Like that's a great line. Just, you know, just a woman just pissing all over you. <laughs> well, I think that that early sound that they had was so different than anything else that was going on. I think because they they had like a lot of the trappings of punk music. You know, the real like frenetic drumming and sting kind of had that like bleach blonde hair which apparently was some kind of accident they did like a photo shoot and like dyed their hair and he liked it and so he kept it um but because they had such high musicianship they knew how to blend in like the syncopated beats and how to bring in you know the, the kind of reggae style and and how to add that like nuance and complexity yeah they're like basically directly or like indirectly responsible for like ub40 and that sort of like uh, you know English reggae stylings, right. which I think is all pretty much garbage. But I like the police. So yeah, uh, and then wait, you're you're it's official. You're officially blaming UB40 on the police. No, I'm officially <laughs> yes, I'm officially blaming UB40 on the police. Yes, okay. Which I I just I just that's okay. It's I, I know somebody that. who was a UB40 Clearly. fan. 
and was like defending UB40 as like being a great band. And uh, Adam, I, was, yeah. was that you? <laughs> yes, it was so me. Yes, it all comes out now. But apparently, the just as a total, uh, you know, uh, uh, side note. UB40 stands for like unemployment benefit form number 40 because they met in the unemployment line. Uh, that's how like oh, the band Awesome. And then they found like 19 horn players or something and recorded red, red wine and made me want to murder them. <laughs> <laughs> and then became a lyric in a fish song many years uh, later. <laughs> exactly. Which that song was released when David Bowie was 40 years old, by the way. Whoa. David Bowie, UB40. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. That's death. <laughs> Yeah. Step right there. If you're gonna have four lyrics in a song, you might as well tie them together. <laughs> Thank the dude of life for that one. So yeah, we're so getting I, off the rails here. Sorry. Yeah, already, we're we're already uh, we're already getting out there. Alan, take control um, of this podcast. Come on. If you are looking to me to take control, I think we're all we're gonna be on here at, at midnight. Um, so anyway, nonetheless, police become a smash hit. I am not gonna go through the laundry list of their accomplishments, but you know they, they ultimately released a total of five albums. The last of which is Synchronicity, which is what we're here to talk about. But, you know, needless to say, they were at one point considered probably the biggest band in the world, actually, when they recorded Synchronicity in um, 1983. So this was their last album. The one thing that's kind of worth noting, I think we'll kind of explore this a little bit. And somebody alluded to this earlier. By this point in the band, they fucking hated each other. And I think it was mostly Sting and Stuart Copeland, such that they recorded almost all this album in entirely separate rooms. Um, apparently Sting and Stuart Copeland like literally came to blows during every breath you take, which seems kind of strange that that's the song that, you know, finally uh, brought them to blows. Well, cause cause Sting, uh, I heard he came to the session with a like a ton of demos already recorded like the guys were rolling in like hey let's do like we do which is like put it together as a band sting rolls in he's got a ton of tunes basically already written and composed and he just wanted them to be like the session guys and they're like no and then so andy like, summer's like here's mother this is good right? <laughs> you know it's interesting you say that adam because i definitely I, I like this record a lot and obviously we'll we'll dive into that but i feel like murder by the numbers is such a transitional what was the police? What is becoming Sting Solo? Like it is yeah. so Sting Solo. Great song, super Sting Solo though. Well, and by this album, Sting knew that he was the hit maker. Like he, he like, wrote most of the songs was, on all their albums though. Right, yeah. and so he's got the pressure of like, okay, well, this might be our last album. Sting, make it awesome, and then you've got the two other guys coming and like, hey, can I do my song? I always get to do a song. Well, this one's about a, a what? Yeah, like my mother on the like. Yeah, it is. I always find it really interesting that like, how much do you have to hate each other? That they're like, seriously, just go on tour. You'll make like forty million dollars each, and they're like, no, I hate him. I can't stand him. <laughs> I like can't you separate do it. tour buses. You don't have to talk ever. You just got to be on stage together. We'll hire another drummer and another guitar player, and you can practice with them and then just get up with these guys. And nope, can't do it. Can't do it. I hate you guys so, so much. So on the Synchronicity tour, it might have been they were playing in France, um, but Summers and Sting got into like a fist fight before the show. Summers broke a rib. Nice. And the roadie, his guitar tech, 
put on a hat and like they made like the stage lights kind of dark on him and he played the show because <laughs> Summers had a broken rib. Wow. Like that's that is like the greatest rock and roll story ever. Well, who who knew that they would come full circle and become punk rock by right. beating the shit out of each other <laughs> on stage? <laughs> that's a great point. <laughs> yeah, cuz that's very punk. Well, you know what would have been more punk? Playing the show. 100%. Yeah, right, yeah, with yeah, yeah. Bruised, and then talking about it like with your shirt off and being like, "Yeah, look at this rib. It's a lot of place. I ain't going to the doctor." Compound fracture. Where you at? So yeah, so you know, Phil, you already started touching on, uh, I, I guess, kind of overall thoughts on this album. Phil, any other um, kind of general impressions? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, I don't, I don't want to uh, ruin it too much before we dive in, but I mean, in general, like, I, I really like this album. I was familiar with it ahead of time, um, you know, and already really had sort of enjoyed, I think, some of the more uh, math rock elements, right, that you catch on songs like. Specifically songs like Synchronicity, Synchronicity 2, um, even some of the slower ones like uh, King of Pain, Walking in Your Footsteps, sort of have like a more of a slow math rock vibe. Uh, so yeah, I, yeah I, I dig this record, um, even though it is a pretty, pretty bold departure from the Police's like, previous three or four records, right? I think this is their fifth record. Yeah, it was their fifth. And it, they only did five. I actually was surprised as I was like looking through this when I saw that they really were only around for five or six years, did five albums and they left it like at the top of their game, like to your point of like, why don't you just keep going and put your differences aside and just rake in the cash? Like, I think they, they were given kind of a lot of like artistic credibility for doing like the Seinfeld thing and saying, Hey, we're number one, but we're just, we're just going out, you know, kind of better to yep. burn out than fade away sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom, what did you think of this album? You know, I feel like this album is a very police album in that it is super uneven. And they have some really high highs, and they have some really low lows, and they got a lot of really middly middles. And I feel like that's pretty consistent in all their albums. There's a couple of songs that are really fantastic, a couple of real stinkers, and then the rest of them I feel like are just, eh, they're okay. Like, I wanted them to maybe, again, they only put out five albums, but, like, I wanted them to maybe be able to work together a little bit more cohesively to make all of the songs into great songs. Or, I mean, it, it's got to be a byproduct of the fact that, like, I hate you so much, I can't be in the room with you, so I'm not actually going to have this, like, great creative collaborative process with you. I'm just going to kind of play my parts and get out. Um because they definitely have the potential to make some hits, and there are some really fantastic songs on this album, but there are some stinkers, and there's also some, ju- like I said, just some ones that are just like, meh, you know, meh. And if you only got five albums, you can't have a lot of meh songs on them. Yeah, Tom, I'm I'm right there with with you. I Aside from, there's three three tracks right in the middle of the album that I think are straight up good and to me the rest is just kind of mediocre I think and so it's 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 what, what was that i said i think yeah. you're tripping. i think you're tripping Adam, because there's some really bad ones in there too so <laughs> oh yeah maybe i'm looking at this wrong but they're not all mediocre um, most of them are bad right right oh, yeah, all right great good good yeah so i you know not i wasn't super 
super impressed. Um, but again, maybe if they'd taken those handful of slamming ones and interspersed them throughout the album a little better. Track ordering, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, man, always comes back to track ordering. So that's my take. Yeah, I, I so I, I agree, I think, with a lot of what was said. Um, this, it, What's funny is I've always been a police fan. I think I mentioned earlier I was exposed to them a lot. My parents loved the police. This was one of their favorite bands of all time. So I just heard this music a lot. But I didn't I didn't hear it necessarily in like album form, you know, so it was a lot of like maybe some greatest hits here and there, a lot of radio songs. So, you know, I was familiar with all, most of what's on here, but but by way of the commercial success. Um, but I agree. I think there are some really peak moments, uh, specifically Synchronicity 2, which we'll talk about in a second. Um but it felt like really, yeah, there was it was definitely imbalanced. It almost felt like the back half was like a great a mini greatest hits kind of album where they just, you know, I don't know if they intentionally stacked all these what what would end up being huge hits. And then the first kind of side of the album was a little bit weak. Um, but all in all, the more I've continued to listen to it over, you know, the last couple, I guess, weeks now that it's been, um, it's definitely grown on me a good bit. Um so why don't we listen to uh, a little bit of Synchronicity 2 to kind of get a feel for, um, you know, one of the, the tunes on this album. So Phil, what uh give me your take on this song. Man, I love this tune. I love the weird sound effect in the beginning. I like the way the rhythm kind of flips you, um, which I feel like is like a bit of a like a Stuart Copeland police trademark, right? I think you see it all over a bunch of their albums and other songs on this record where like the drums sort of hit you literally sideways, like you were tapping your foot to the other beat. Uh, yeah, I like I like the end of the song and the way that there's... I feel like it could have gone deeper, honestly. I feel like there could be more layering in the harmony. I think the lyrics are hilarious. What's not to love about this song? Like, seriously, what's not to love? Good question. Adam, are you here? Or Tom, are you... <laughs> Listen, I address that. I'm not going to say I don't. there's something I don't love about the song. I will say that the lyrics are very police and that they're like... There's a great mix of fantastic and terrible lyrics in there. Like uh, just a line about like uh, the din of your Rice Krispies. Like I, I get what you're going for it, there, but like it's is this the one where he line. says "kick in the crotch"? Humiliating, kick, kick in the crotch. <laughs> so I, I have a little, a little theory that you, if you have an album where you say "Mr. Brontosaurus" and "kick in the crotch." You just shouldn't be allowed to have an album if you if you use those words unless in the it's same a Johnny Karate album or something. Yes, or a Weird Al album. Okay, those are the two exceptions when you could say Brontosaurus and Crotch no, I, on the same. I album. actually I really like the there's the coupling of the two lines of like uh, you know the secretaries uh, like uh, the like print and print like tarts whatever and it says all he ever thinks to do is watch. And then, like, the, you know, every meeting with the so-called superiors are humiliating, kicking the crotch. Like, those two are, those two lines together, 
just are a very good way to say emasculated. He's totally emasculated, and I get it. Sure. And, like, you don't need to spend any more time on the fact that this guy is completely emasculated. And I'm like, all right, good. I get that. That's great lyric writing. But you talk about your the din of the Rice Krispies and Grandma screaming at the wall, and, like, I don't quite follow those to some, uh, you know, deeper meaning. But uh, It's because you hate breakfast. I do hate breakfast. That is true. <laughs> you must. Well, also, Rice Krispies are really terrible. They're terrible. Uh, of, yeah. of breakfast cereals, yeah. I mean, it's air. Yeah. Just give me some grape nuts, for God's sake. Um, <laughs> I really enjoy the bass over the pre-chorus, which is actually the line. Like, uh, um, the bass just kind of holds on the chord, and the and the guitar kind of climbs through the chords. I find that to be really cool. I think that that is... Um, I think that is tastefully done. It's, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, a device that is used in a lot of different songs, but I like it a lot. And uh, I also think Andy Summers doesn't get a lot of credit for his guitar contributions because Sting and Stuart Copeland take a lot of the energy out, but he's a great guitar player. And I, think I will totally agree with that. Yeah, there's a lot of good guitar work. And in general, his t- I'm not thrilled with his tone. It's just a personal thing, but I totally dig it in the context of this song. It fits in well and just, yeah, you're right. He I, Underrated. I, I definitely agree. I mean, I think in a weird way, he's sort of like the Ringo of the band. And I mean that in that he's just servicing the songs. Uh, he's doing exactly what they need. It sounds fabulous. He comes off as like, a, the, you know, the weak link. He's not the weak link. He's just the one who didn't feel the need to battle everyone else out for front spot, right? Well, I will say, like, you know, as Phil, you and I have been in a band where we covered um, Message in a Bottle. Mm-hmm. By far, the most interesting and complex part of that song is the guitar. By a million miles. The drums yeah, sure. are pretty easy. The bass is really easy. The guitar is not easy. And it's really, it's tasteful. It's interesting. Like, I, I, think, he's, I think he's really great. Well, I think that was part Apparently, of He what... writes terrible songs, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true that. Speaking of which, let's... Uh... Let's move on to uh, the song Mother, which uh, is was Andy Summers. So Andy Summers and Stuart Copeland each contributed one song to this album. And um, there was a school of thought that, you know, I kind of came across. To me, this is a little cynical, but that they kind of knew this was going to be a smash hit. It, it ultimately sold 8 million records just in the U.S. alone. But, you know, maybe there was some angling for, like, increased revenue from a songwriting credit. I have to think they could have contributed better songs than this. Um, Stuart Copeland contributed uh, Miss Gradenko. Listen to that if you have a chance. Um, but let's don't take a spin from... That. Yeah, don't, don't do that. I mean, if you have a choice between that and Mother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, let's, let's take 30 minutes from... Or 30 seconds from your, your life and uh, spin some of that real quick. It'll feel like 30 minutes. Don't worry. <laughs> right. Phil, give it to us, mother. You know, you know, clearly this song is terrible. 
right? <laughs> yes. So, so with that said, I feel like I would like to say that it was better than I remembered it being. <laughs> Uh, we, we joked about this when we, when we discovered we were going to be listening to this. This song immediately pops out as the worst song on the record to me. Uh, yeah, it has a bunch of strange sort of like North African sort of weird modal stuff going on, Middle, Middle Eastern modal stuff. That was actually looking back on it, listening back as an adult, like, I was like, ah, oh, all right, maybe I could, you know, I... I I'm really reaching here, guys. Really reaching here. Uh, it's not good. It's not good. It's not as bad as I remembered it being. That is definitely not saying much. Uh, I'm done. I'm I, out. I, I got a <laughs> fill quote here. So uh, probably five or six, seven episodes back, we reviewed a, an MIA album, and Phil's initial comment was, I don't get it. <laughs> and so I'm going to capture Phil's statements on that one and just say, I don't get it. I don't know. Well, I, I would love to have been a fly in the wall for the conversation where they were like, all right, listen, I wrote this song. Andy Summers is going to Stuart Copeland. It's like, listen, I wrote this song. Uh, it's called Mother, and he plays it for me. He's like, hmm, you know, it's pretty off-putting. Is there a way we could make it more off-putting by putting making it in seven? <laughs> yes, let's put it in seven. <laughs> And for the My listeners God. out there that are not familiar with how time signatures work, every song you love is in four four, <laughs> or maybe six four. Like it's like it's either one two That's three stretch, four or right. one two three four five six. And this is one two three four five six seven one two. It's not. It's an odd time. It doesn't make sense. It's and not like, done particularly well at that. It's not done particularly well. It may have actually been three four, because it's so like fragmented, but. Yeah. It's possible, it's, yes, but like it's it's a train wreck of a song, and Tom, again, you you alluded to to Summers playing this for Sting, and uh, you know, uh, can you actually imagine this song being demoed? That's not, I can't like, what's imagine to play? a scenario <laughs> where like somebody sits down with a guitar and, or, or any instrument for that matter and plays this. For just like, ah! just going, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Is that my mother on the phone? <laughs> That's cold. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, it's um it's really bad and again, we've talked about this so many times before, but like the delivery on mother that he kind of like keeps throwing in like how you had studio time. You were the biggest band in the world. You could have gone back and gotten way better delivery of that and you went for the super weird delivery. That's a, that makes it so much worse. It's not like you were pressed for time. And you had to have known that, like, you somehow have made, like, the third worst song about mothers behind. I mean, sorry, like, 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 like Pink Floyd's mother, clearly the best. I'm going to take Danzig's Mother 93 over this oh, song. Any day time. Yeah, for sure. Good call. But uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Did Sting actually play bass on this? Good question. Is there bass <laughs> on this? I, I don't know what that, what it is. I, I the instrumentation is another song. Me that Sting refused for like a week or two, he refused to sing. And I can't, it, it was Mr. Gerdenko uh, where they were like, you need to sing this. He's like, I'm not doing that. And he refused to do any more than two takes. So he just kind of like mailed it in. It was like, we're done with that one. I'm going home for the day. I he feel and like Stuart Copeland hated each other. Man. Oh. Yeah. 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 Look, I will say a positive thing about mother. I like the guitar solo. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's cool. 
Yeah. I think the guitar solo, it's fitting, certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I I couldn't I just couldn't really deal with the song honestly. I it makes me question again what was the decision making process like they I don't think we're hurting for material you know it wasn't like this is a an eight track album that you know they needed to fulfill some like contractual requirement I just I didn't see why it was on there and I try to not go for lowest denominator like oh that sucks and it's just. Uh, but I really struggled to find like, what is redeeming about this? Is there anything that's like innovative? Are they like moving the needle or pushing boundaries in some way? Or is there something new here that I just don't get? And, and it's just terrible. I, I, you know, I really couldn't, Alan, couldn't figure it out. I like, I like your money grab theory, right? I actually like your money grab theory, right? Because I, I'm just like looking at the record now and thinking about it on a vinyl LP it makes sense that Synchronicity 1 and Synchronicity 2 would bookend the first side track, like side A, right? And especially because you got a couple of short songs in here, it adds up to about 20, 21 minutes. Side runs about 22. And then once you get to the other side of the album, Every Breath You Take to Murder by Numbers, the tracks are running longer. So it, I think it actually makes sense that they knew that they could sandwich these songs in here Right? It's not, it doesn't even kill the flow of the side of the record, especially if it's a record. Mother's terrible, but you can't, is it so bad you're going to pick up the needle and move it? Probably not. Short enough you can get through it. <laughs> short enough you can yeah. get through it. Just yeah. barely short enough you can get through it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I, terrible all around. You know, not much else to, to say on that front. Well, the one, also, I will, I will give it to Andy Summers. It's a brave song. Yep. In terms of lyrical content, because he's really dumping his purse out about like the way that he views relationships and his relationship with his girlfriends and wife and mother and all that stuff. Like, don't don't devour me. Yeah, don't devour <laughs> me. Every girl I date becomes my mother in the end. Like, you can take that in a couple of ways. Like, I'm an incompetent human being who can't take care of myself, and they have to clean up after me and cook me food. And also, I have a weird like edible complex thing. Like, it's it's a brave choice. I wouldn't say it's a good choice, but it's a brave <laughs> choice. I would give them that. Well, I think at this point in their career, like not only could they see that the band was coming to a close and that this really was the last album that they were going to record. I don't know that they had made that decision, but I think they all saw that that's where it was going. But I think a lot of their relationships too were also sort of being on tour and, and being involved in what was probably the biggest band in the world at that time, like really took a toll on their relationships. So, you know, Andy Summers was either getting divorced or was, was in the process as was sting um, was, was his relationship was disintegrating. Could you imagine the conversations you'd be having with your wife of, I'm just going to go spend 36 weeks on tour as one of the biggest and most famous musicians in the world. And I'm going to have tens of thousands of women trying to have sex with me all the time. But I promise you, Number one, you can't come. And number two, I promise you, I will not cheat on you. Like, there's just no way in the world that that's credible. And like, no matter how much you love your wife, at some point, you're like, I've had nine beers because I am a rock star and all I have to do is sleep on a bus tomorrow <laughs> while people drive me to my next gig where I'm going to make a hundred grand. And uh, yeah. Sound have... checks at 3 p.m. <laughs> right. Yeah. And like, oh, there's an entire room full of women that are here explicitly because they have said that they are willing to have sex with me. Like... <laughs> 
I'm more I'm intrigued by this that... by this idea of making a living by drinking nine beers a day. That's that's a more appealing. <laughs> can part I make of this. that happen? <laughs> yeah, I'm down I mean, with that. You, you definitely can make that happen. You're just not gonna be. You're not gonna make sting money. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> True. There's plenty of guys working at Wawa that are drinking nine beers a day. <laughs> you know, I would argue that there's uh, some decent trade-offs there. Yeah. Nonetheless, speaking of you know disintegrating relationships, the song King of Pain was actually forged from Sting's um, relationship failure and, and was sort of a, a pretty vulnerable song for, for him to write. So let's uh, let's take a spin through that real quick. King of Pain. I mean, obviously it's a slow jam. This is this is I'm gonna guess gonna be one of the many tunes on the record, you know, where uh, Adam and the like say that it's like the band is taking one off. But I think it's cool. I like the interplay between the marimba and I think it's like a keyboard. The drums seem a little uh, aggressive for my taste. Um, yeah, I think it's good. Personally, I prefer Walking in Your Footsteps. I kind of think these are sort of like the same song in an unfortunate way. I think they have a lot of similarities. Um, but yeah, I think it's... Uh, also, Sting is like a bit of a sad bastard in this song. And to Tom's point, like, you know, man, I, I don't really care about your problems, right? Like, like from, you know, your perspective. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think that's where I'm at on King of Pain. What about you, Tom? So, this is my favorite song on the album. I love this song. I think the song is fantastic. Um, I love the drum come in. Um, you said they're aggressive, but like I like that it comes in with that snare hit. Um, it comes in like it's like right around a minute eight, minute ten, and the snare comes in and it catches you off guard. You think that it's like a weird pickup beat and it's wrong. But it's it's just where the snare belongs, and it stays that consistent. Yep. That's like this Stuart Copeland like song. move. He does it in a lot of tunes across all their records, and it's it's always he always catches you, right? It's like it's always catches you, and it's great. Yeah, and like my favorite part of the song is the tonal change in the chorus from the first time they do the chorus to the second and third time they do the chorus. The first time they do the chorus, where it's all piano, like. You know, I'm not I'm not usually the guy that breaks down the chords, but like listening back to what it's like, I have to understand how they got this great tonal change out of it. So that first time it's just all piano and it comes in and it's like an A with a D in the bass and then a G6 and then a D with an F sharp in the bass and then a G. And that's like that first that first chorus and it feels kind of down. It feels kind of somber. And then when they go to the second chorus and the third chorus, it doesn't feel somber anymore. It feels kind of up. And they basically just, it's just a D and a G at that point. And there's more instrumentation. And they have the, the, the sting on the bass does a lot of the work of the movement. He prominently plays that F sharp on the bass in there a bunch. But like, I'm just impressed by the fact that they can have 
what is in essence the same structure for a chorus, but have it feel extraordinarily different each time they play it. And like that is also, I, I feel like I would be remiss if I did not mention that I was 100% introduced to the song as Weird Al Yankovic's King of Suede. And I love that song. And I was like, this song's fantastic. Like, you know, I, let me go find the real my one. size up there. Like, it's so good. Um, but then I heard the, then I heard the original one. I was like, in. oh, this is great. Listen, the Weird Al one is fantastic. And it sounds exactly like it because Weird Al has of got course. fidelity to the music, of course. But like, no, I, 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 I think it's a really well-constructed song, and I think that it does what they were trying to come to this album to accomplish, which was space and was more of a sort of like a band feel. They use space extraordinarily well. Um, that verse coming out of the guitar solo, where they kind of have things keep coming in and dropping out, and then eventually it's just sort of like Sting singing over like, I guess it's the kind of like fading marimba sounds. It's it's really good. Um, I think that all in all, like this is, again, my favorite song on the album. Well-constructed, knocked it out of the park. Yeah, I, I dig this tune not quite as much as you, Tom, but um, I like, so I like that this song has that 80s synth thing going on, but it's not overwhelming. Um, wrapped around your finger in my mind goes overboard with that 80s synth thing, and it feels like a you know I'm in a dentist office. But but this tune had a nice mix of like analog instruments and some synth, and to me the the song is a four minute build up to the outro. Like I I think it right around four minutes, it's maybe the outro choruses come in and everything kind of comes together and it's this list, this release and you get all the vocals and it's it's just a nice it's a nice build up and then you hit that four minute mark and it's like ah this is what i've been waiting for in this song so yeah i um <clears throat> i'm probably a little more aligned with you tom like I, I i don't think i love it as much as you know quite as you've expressed but i think it's a it's just a great song i, I there's a if, if I had any criticism, it's slightly on the cheesier side and, and a little kind of sappy. And to your point, Phil, Sting is far from a sympathetic figure, so it's hard to to really like, uh, you know, put yourself in his shoes and, and feel whatever pain he might Too be feeling. Too much chicks and money. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this eighth hour of tantric sex is just <laughs> really getting to me here. Um but I think all in all, it's a great song. I love songs like this that, you know, it's clearly a pop song, but the percussion in this is so, you know, I think for most people that probably listen to it, it's got a great feel but and may not catch what's really happening underneath. Um, but I think just really nice use of whether it's marimba or xylophone. I'm not exactly sure what, what's happening with that percussion. Um, but I think what I also like about this song is by this point in the band's like kind of career sting really just wanted kind of studio musicians and he he didn't want a lot of this extraneous shit but i think you know the other guys still wanted to to show their chops and still kind of grow musically and i and i love that you know that stuart copeland was able to still incorporate a lot of those beats that really kind of made him shine and that 
that were the backbone of a lot of their music, um, but still maintain like a pretty simple, you know, kind of pop sensibility, you know, and again, like really nice build up, just had it had a great kind of pacing to it. Um, yeah. Alan, you said something in there about the production of this song, and I actually think it shows up all across the record. And, and it's sort of alluded to in some of the research I saw, um, sort of basically just saying like, this was the band sort of experimenting with synthesizers. I didn't really have that much experience with synth previous to this. And if they did, it was probably a studio musician, right? I think that this record does a really good job or interesting job of blending piano, marimba, and synthesizer sounds in a way that you can't always tell what's like piano doubled with marimba or guitar doubled with marimba versus a, a really staccato synth sound that has very fast decay, right? I just think it's done very well, right? And that's, I think, part of what it gives it like some, some breathiness. And it really just gives the, the record in general some air. And, and it, is, it is present both in this song and Walking in Your Footsteps, which I like a lot. I think it's also, uh, I'll stop there, those two. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, it's, it's, I, I, I have a general distaste for a lot of like what you would normally consider like the 80s, like heavy synth sound, which I think has also made a somewhat of a comeback lately in like those Mac DeMarco type bands where it's just like, it's a little grating to me, like yeah. that heavy synth sound. But I think they used it, the, the police did in a way that, kind of mixes in really well and doesn't feel as uh, offensive to my, my yeah, taste. Yeah, I mean, uh, in general, I think it's not as dated as I think there's a lot of material from the 80s that just sounds really dated. The technology gets in the way of the song, right? Right. So the next song we're talking about uh, as we kind of march through the uh, greatest hits tour of this album is uh, Wrapped Around Your Finger. Let's Let's give that a little spin. Phil, what do you think of this tune? So, obviously a slower one. Um, I, I, I mean, we were just talking about the synths. I like the synthesizer on this song. And I think, like, the things I like about synthesizer are present in this song. It has that little, like, intro sort of, like, bell sound that pitches down a little. Um, I think it's used pretty effectively as, like, a rhythmic tool, um, even though it's uh, very in organic sound. Um, again, I think the lyrics and melody, I think, are great. I do think, you know, I have a little trouble uh, as, a, as, a, as a critic now thinking about it, critically looking directly at the sun, a little trouble sort of relating to Sting. Uh, but, uh, you know, that aside, again, like, I think this is a solid tune. Like, this is a, this is a, this is a winner. So, Tom, what'd you think of this song? You know, um, there was there was like again that sort of sparse arrangement that I liked. Um, 
I don't understand why this song was a hit because um, I feel like it kind of was a hit. Um, I think if it wasn't on Synchronicity and people weren't awaiting the next single from Synchronicity, it probably would not have been a hit if this was like the marquee song on an album. Um, but, you know, it's sparse. The sparse arrangement works. I feel like the drum come in at the end. Phil, you've described uh, Stuart Copeland's drum styling as somewhat aggressive on some of these slower songs. Sure. But I feel like it does give movement when he kind of picks it up at the end of the song. Um, and, you know, again, I don't hate it. Um, I don't love it. I feel like this is one of those ones that is just like it's it's very middle of the pack. It's it's not the high highs or the, the dizzying highs or the, the low lows. It's the it's the creamy middle, you know. And so, uh, again, I, I can take it. I, I don't love it. Um, I don't hate it. There's some stuff to to um, uh, there's some stuff to recommend it. But overall, I, I could I could have never listened to this song and I've been fine. This falls into Sweet Home Alabama territory for me in that it's an automatic skip. And I th- like You're just deaf to it at this point. I'm, I, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I think sure. it's maybe culturally, I've heard it so much. Again, it feels like I'm sitting in a dentist chair as a nine-year-old boy, and this is what's playing. Maybe I had a, a traumatic uh, cavity or something that was filled while this song was, was playing in the background. But uh, yeah, the synth is just a little bit too much for me there's that corny thing in the beginning phil which is odd that that you really like but that ding 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 like no was, no no. i like that oh gotcha okay because <laughs> there's this little like chintzy melody that comes in it's kind of an intro and it feels yeah, kind of hokey mean. That's, yeah i don't love that the one thing i do like similar to the prior one song we just talked about which is it's like you're it's kind of dragging you through and then at the three minute and 40 uh second mark everything comes in the drums come in he's on the ride and it's it's now moving and it's like the song has arrived but it's two minutes late it, it kind of that's the way it feels so yeah it's an okay song but again for me it's kind of an auto auto skip yeah i know what you mean by that like uh courtney and i always talk about um songs that <laughs> i started referring to them as like not music anymore where if if uh if you've just heard something so many times that it's now can be classified as something entirely different than music because it's just either you've heard it too many times or you've heard it in the wrong context. Um, I wouldn't say I put this song in that category, but I know exactly what you mean. Um, I, I don't particularly love this song. I think there's a decent song in there that wants to come out that could come out if it were either arranged differently or had some different instrumentation. Um, I definitely feel like it's an ambitious and kind of ballsy song because of, you know, again, there's, it's so sparse and there's not a lot there that, you know, I I think they're, I I respect them kind of going for it on this song. Um, Yeah, I dig that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some moments like there's Sting has a really nice kind of syncopated bass line that comes out of the chorus back into the verse for a few seconds that is, is super tight. And I, I do think this album or this, this track of all the other tracks on the album kind of retains a little bit of their old reggae feel more than most of it. And again, I mean, they, they evolved and and progressed away from that, but I think this, not that they were intentionally trying to like pay tribute to those old days, but I think it more so kind of has that same um, slower syncopated reggae feel. Um, But I, I don't think it's a great song. I'm sort of shocked that this, you know, to someone's point earlier that 
this is sort of made that greatest hits could be because they made a video, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure, but, um, yeah, it had a pretty cool music video with like a room full of mirrors and a bunch of candles. So it created this like sort of expansive stink sex room. Yeah, yeah, that's Sting's basement. Well, I will give it to Sting. Um, clearly plays a fretless bass on this. I don't know if it's upright. I think it's. I don't think it's upright. I think the only song he played upright on was "Every Breath You Take" on this album. I think that uh, he definitely plays fretless on "Oh My God" too. Um, yeah. So there's definitely some cool fretless on here. I mean, yeah, Sting's I, a fabulous musician. He, he's a great bass player. Sure. Fabulous musician. You know, uh, not a great actor. Um, all that I see is an Atreides that I want to kill. Uh, if you guys have watched Dune recently, I recently rewatched Dune in anticipation of the new <laughs> Dune movie coming out. <laughs> That's awesome. I've never watched Dune, but knowing that Sting is in it is a little bit extra motivation. Oh yeah, and he plays a he plays a villain too. Oh, I'm gonna have to get on that. There's like uh, there's a great scene where he's like oiled up and shirtless and like <laughs> flexing his like wiry frame, and it's just like oh, Sting. I feel like I could envision him (laughs) playing like a villain in a Die Hard movie or something. Like, I feel like he just has that, like, that look about him. I don't know. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good thing his acting career didn't seem to be, uh, you know, flourishing. (laughs) Well, actually, I had pulled up his IMDb earlier. Let me uh, let me re-reference that right now. He's he's known for, uh, I guess he was only, he only did the music for The Emperor's New Groove, but... (laughs) He's uh he's been in a couple of he's been in a couple of movies. Let's see. Let's see what his uh man, a lot of soundtracks. He's done a lot of soundtracks. Good lord. It it says something about his acting ability that like 99% of his IMDb career is soundtrack work. Um there's probably... a reason for that, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Sting as an actor. Oh, it's mostly like uh, you know. Oh, he was in Ally McBeal. As Sting. I, was, I thought you were going to say S- <laughs> he was on SVU. This isn't everybody on SVU. Is that the one with um, Ice T? I was supposed yes. to be on. I, I was supposed to be on SVU, and then this COVID shit happened. Seriously, Are you serious? I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was supposed to be like, yeah, I was like, yeah, I was gonna have like a bit just part. A, in what? Like, yeah. May like walking through? No, it's bullshit. Yeah. What? Two messages. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, no, he was in Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so, Phil, I know now to just never trust anything you ever say. That's, that's, yeah, let's that's about you right. You didn't learn that in high school? Come on, man. Right. <laughs> the more confidence Phil says a thing with, the less I believe. The less it. likely it is to be true. That's, that's not the worst strategy. <laughs> I mean, clearly it's worked well for you in the business world, Phil. Yeah. So are you saying everyone can just disregard his entire commentary on this? We'll just mute. We'll mute his line for the whole thing. <laughs> Kidding, Phil. I love you. I mean, we're all, we all lack credibility on this podcast. So anybody who's, who's taking our comments to heart is, uh, you know, they're, they're casting about in the dark for something to grasp onto. Yeah, totally. I was totally going to be on Law & Order. SVU is bullshit. <laughs> yeah. You and Dick they're the, Wolf they're the, Actually, they're the same thing. What am I talking about? Wait, Law and Order is not SV. Is Law and Order SVU? Yeah, Law and Order SVU, Special Victims Unit. I've literally yeah. never watched a single minute of any of those shows. Well, speaking Show of, off, <laughs> hey, that is, dude, Alan, great segue. It's pro man, pro. Speaking of murder and yeah. killing, um, 
the final song we're gonna talk about let's let's give a spin by uh murder by numbers just do it with a little more finesse if you can slip a tablet into someone's coffee the boys an awful lot of mess because it's murder by numbers So yeah, th- this track was, um, I-, I was a little, you know, I had to do a little digging on this track because apparently this was not on the original vinyl, but it was like a bonus track, I guess, when they kind of released it either as a tape or a CD. Um, so it's sort of on the record, but not on the record. Not not sure where it falls. Um, but uh, Phil, what was your take on this tune? So I find that interesting that you would say that just because I... Of all the tunes on the record, I mean, Mother Aside, like, we, I think we all agree that's not really a song, right? That's like a, <laughs> whatever the opposite of a palate cleanser is, right? It's a sound interlude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the Milwaukee's best. It just ruins yeah. your palate. So, so Tea in the Sahara was the last song on, like, the vinyl LP, and presumptively the last song of their career because they hated each other. Yep. That's right. probably a safe assumption. It's interesting. Uh, anyway, my thought on this song, uh, honestly, listening to it, uh, one, this sounds like the, uh, you know, this is like the preview for Sting's solo career. I feel like this is like very much in this sort of like fields of gold, uh, you know, sort of tonality and sort of harmonic sort of vibe that Sting would pursue post-police. I don't think this sounds like Stuart Copeland on drums. Or, or Andy Summers. In that way, I just like, I don't know how he coached the performances out of them because it sounds so much different than the rest of the record. Other than that, I actually think it's a pretty good tune. Uh, I think it has cool jazz harmony. It's a little out of Sting's range, which I think is like, like at the tip, tip top, which is like fun because he's got a crazy voice and like it's fun to hear him really going for it. It just doesn't sound like it belongs on this record at all. Uh, yeah. Well, it's so this this song was actually written primarily by Andy Summers. I think really? Andy Summers wrote the chords for the song. Yeah, I think it was the only collaboration the on the album. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, so that is like um, maybe Sting heard this and was like, "Oh yeah, I can sell a whole bunch of new wave records with this, and you know, make a make a pretty big career post the police out of this." But. Uh, I, I so in my head I was picturing Andy Summers comes with this like you know chord progression and Sting is like fantasizing about murdering Stuart Copeland. <laughs> He's like writing a song about how like hey you know I could probably just like slip something into his tea and uh, yeah yeah there isn't any need for bloodshed you know just saying you know it's actually it's you can turn it into art like it could be part of the album it could be a concept album where I murder the drummer and, <laughs> and this is my manifesto yeah. well according to song facts the uh, lyrics describe how to get in the mindset of killing people sting said is about the evil deeds of politicians oh so, politicians yes that's, right that's the go-to englishman's uh yeah it's all about the politicians you know yeah. as if you have but to no, get I, in the mood to kill them i like the i like the chords i think the chords are great um you know, there's some really good movement, but 
I, I feel like the song came off as needless. I'm just like, it doesn't need to be on the album. I can see why they left it off originally. Um, because most of my listening to synchronicity is I have the vinyl and I listen to the vinyl and I don't miss this song at all when I listen to the vinyl version of it. Phil, you know a lot more about guitar than I do. Uh, there's an, another guitar player that has this same tone. I don't know if it's John McLaughlin or uh, it, it, I, some, I know what you mean. Pat Metheny or something. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, but I, yeah, I it's say like that a because, blocky jazz tone, right? Yeah, but I don't dig it because it's like <laughs> it's it's like it has this chorus effect on it oh, and it's chorus. just yeah yeah sorry not not the um not the guitar tone but like the effect on it and it's like this really sloppy chorus and i just oh yeah God, it just, it's just it, the 80s chorus right yeah yeah, yeah, I yeah. Mean, it kind of ruins the tune for me i mean i appreciate the 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 departure um the chords are cool with the basses, how it's how it's what it's doing with the chords, but man, that guitar tone is just I, enough I, to turn me I, off I, in the first I, ten my, seconds. My head was in a different place when you first said that, but yeah, I totally I totally hear it now. That sort of like eighties, late eighties, early nineties. This this sort of sound would have been all over the jazz scene in the late eighties yeah. and early nineties. Well and yeah. Honestly, you talk about blocky, even like looking at the voicing of the chords, like how he's actually fingering them on the frets a lot of them are like you know just like uh you know uh third fourth fifth string on the third fret you know like uh it's a lot of like you know just kind of yeah it's like one fingery type of shit and they sound good because right. like they're good chords but like if you look at the actual fingering it's a lot of like you know just laying a finger down somewhere and getting that sort of yeah it's a, it's a lot of like smart minimalism that yeah. that you know because he's a fantastic musician pays off into those one or two chords like that are sort of out of out of this world right yeah yeah i i kind of like this song i think uh, you know phil you you brought up a, a good point which was um i love sting tr really going for it and trying to hit that outer limits of his range because it's already so high to begin with that i mean I feel like there's almost no chance that he could execute that live. Um, although, actually, if anyone could, it might be Sting. But I think the you know time has probably ravaged that slightly. But um, yeah, I like this song. Actually, actually, funny story. I this was maybe like 18 months ago. I was just on YouTube and they played me a video. They were just like, "Oh, next, like Sting," and it was like Sting at some radio station on some island in the Mediterranean. Said it was like French, right? And Sting is in there in like a wife beater and a pair of shorts just talking. Sting's probably 65 at this point. And they ask him to play a song and they hand him this little like three quarter pint sized guitar and he dinks around on it for a second. And then he plays Message in a Bottle, like the guitar part, the whole thing. I mean, like flawlessly. And he's singing and he's all over the place and it sounds amazing. And he stops like three quarters of the way through the song. And he's like, man, I haven't, I haven't played that song in like eight or nine years, right? I guess referencing the 2006 tour, right? Like the comeback tour. And I was just like, damn, like he is he's not like, losing a step, right? Like, I was just on my Corsican vacation over here and all yeah, of a sudden yeah. I'm, uh, you know. Also, he's like 62, 65 years old. And like he looked significantly better than 35-year-old me. A year has passed since I wrote my notes. I should have known this right from the start Only hope can keep me together 
He also did a uh, Tiny Desk concert with Shaggy, of all people, which I don't know if anyone they knew. They tore together. Uh, they, they, it they wasn't tore together. me, Faye? <laughs> yeah. Sting and Shaggy? Mr. Love and Wait, Love no, it, that guy. You're telling me that I can hear uh, You're telling me that I can hear Sting and Shaggy together where Sting is doing that. Then she saw me in the shower. It Dude, I think me. there's two straight up like no. I don't know that they're doing Shaggy like, songs. Let's put it that way. Maybe I think there are, are two Sting Shaggy records. I think there are two of them. The collaboration you didn't know you needed. I don't need that. I definitely don't need that. Well, it's out there. Message in my bot. <laughs> He's got that weird frog thing. <laughs> Mr. Lover, lover. Um, yeah. yeah. We should probably try trying to do Caribbean accents really quickly. Yeah, that's pretty terrible. Editing magic. <laughs> Put a flanger on everything. Yeah. <laughs> Bring it on. So, okay, moment of truth. Uh, the police were one of the most successful bands of all time, but do they get our stamp of approval to add this song to the list? Phil. Okay, so obviously I have talked up this record from the positive standpoint the whole time. Now I'm going to throw a big curveball, and I'm going to say no. I think this record is skippable. Why? Because this, the police only have five records. Regatta de Blanc is hands down better than this. Outlander Stimmore is hands down better than this. I'll take Ghost in the Machine over this. I think this is a fabulous record. I love Love is Strong. But like, I can go down this list. Synchronicity, Walking in Your Footsteps. Oh my God. I'll take Miss Gradenko. Synchronicity 2, Every Breath You Take. King of Pain, Wrapped Around Your Finger. I'll take Murder by Numbers. I don't know about Tea in the Sahara. Like, I could not even begin to make a record better than this. I couldn't even begin. That said, this is like maybe the fourth best police record. So I'm going to say, no, you don't need to listen to this record. So I, I'm going to come in and say, I my favorite police record is Ghost in the Machine. I love that record. Um, it sounds significantly different than this. Um, I think Regard to Blanc much better album than this album, um, which is also on the list. Um, so credit to Robert Dimery, it's on the list. Um, the reason I'm going to say no is because, like, the songs on this album that you need to hear, if you've walked by a radio in the last 30 years, you've heard these songs already. There's nothing hidden on this album that you're going to discover that you're like, oh, it's a hidden gem that I never had heard before. This is amazing. And, you know, I know we kind of talk about, like, what is the criteria that we are using by which to judge these albums. And it shifts. It certainly shifts album by album. Definitely. Um, but for an album like this, that has gotten so much play for its hits. If I was going to say, you need to listen to the album, not to the songs because the songs are fantastic. That are the hits. And if you, but you've already heard those songs. If you're going to listen to the album, there's got to be a hidden gem on there. They're going to be like, Oh my God, where has this song been? I'll throw it back to like uh, the zombies. This will be our year. Hidden gem, absolute classic. That was like, how have I not heard this song before? I, you don't have that experience listening to this album. And so it's a no vote for me. Yeah. In the same way that, that, um, Don, that Donald Fagan album was kind of the realization in my mind of what uh, he wanted Steely Dan to become 
like so the band breaks up and then he does his own thing which is the the total realization of 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 the direction that band was going uh this album feels like it kind of does that with sting right it's kind of queuing him up for his solo career uh but for the police uh i think there are better albums that that you could go to to, to get a better feel of who and what they are so it, it's a no for me well, that makes it easy that I'm not going to force a, a tie. So I'm, I'm going to say yes now that I know that, um, you know, there's no consequence for my vote. But no, in all seriousness, um, this was a pretty Coward. easy. Well, that's fair <laughs> on many levels. Um, this was actually an easy yes for me. And I hear what you're saying about are there other police albums that are better? Yeah, I think so. My favorite police album would probably be their first one. Um, but I, I don't know that the purpose of the list is to have only one representation from every great band. So I think, you know, it's, it's more of a yes end for me. Um, the, the point you made Tom about the, the songs being sort of ubiquitous, that's totally true. Everyone's heard these songs. There's no real deep cuts, but my kind of interpretation on this list is like, this is sort of in a vacuum. You know, I, I don't know what his intention was for this list, but I, I don't want to separate some of those good songs just because they have been overplayed. You know, I think I'm kind of approaching it as like, if you were never going to hear this music, like, should you hear it? And so based on that criteria, um, I'll put it in there. I do think part of what I also appreciate, even though, you know, I don't think this is like the best album ever. Again, like I made this point earlier, their progression from where they started to kind of where they got with this album, really utilizing like all all of the outer limits of what's available for recording, but doing it, I think, in a reasonably tasteful way. Um, and in only, you know, five or six kind of years that they made that progression, I think it's a good album and I think it, it's definitely worth listening to. So I'll be the lone uh, dissenting voice here. Uh, so, Alan, you're you're premise is like uh if you're like trekking into the amazon to like an uncontacted tribe are you gonna be like this is a representation of like an album you should listen to i would agree with that version <laughs> of it for this particular i don't know why but for this week that wasn't the way that i thought about it and it's gonna change week to week people we're inconsistent get over it oh yeah i, I have no core values <laughs> like I, i'm not gonna <laughs> say the same thing next week by, by any stretch no standards <laughs> however well, i mean is, is fear a standard <laughs> cowardice <laughs> cowardice is cowardice the standard it, it can be we can we I can mean, apparently it. so <laughs> embracing it however i'm sure that you all out there have your thoughts on uh on this cowardice on cow <laughs> on cowardice <laughs> if you've stuck it if you've uh, made it this far in this recording um you know god bless god you bless you indeed um However, let us know what you think. Our email address is 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. All right. And next week, unfortunately, the Albinator has exploded and has taken Tom with it. So I'll announce next week. What do we got? The Atomic Mr. Basie by Count Basie. Listen up. I know you have that in vinyl somewhere in your collection. Spin it. Come prepared. Well, uh, thanks, everyone, for uh, hanging out with us tonight and uh, discussing some police. I am Alan. Uh, I'm Phil. And I'm Adam. Boosh.